From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama says clean energy is a key to more jobs. In at least one state, it's already working well. We saw a significant increase in manufacturing and assembly jobs at a time when economic trends are trending the other way. But that's because we have helped companies grow and locate here and including keep their manufacturing operations here. Also the toads that mysteriously materialize after torrential rains in the desert. It sounded like I fully expected it to be nothing but couches spadefoot because of their ability to use such short-lived water. But mosquito control often dooms the tadpoles. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For each of the last 11 months, Amtrak has carried a record number of passengers. 30 million people let the train take the strain last year, and passengers on the Downeaster have noticed. Ridership has, all summer has been nuts. We had days where there were people wandering the aisles looking for seats. There were people who were sitting on the floor because every seat was taken. So you're a conductor here on Amtrak. Can I ask your name? Jim. What do you think that people find best about the train? What are they most excited about? I think it's like, you know, leave the driving to somebody else. Um, we have the cafe car. You know, uh, there's no airport-type security uh, to board. You're free to, to walk around, and you're not confined to your seat. I think it's very convenient. People would prefer to, especially commuters, to park and take the train rather than park in Boston. I get to sit in a nice, comfortable seat with my computer in front of me. I get to read my blog, I get to read the news, I get to listen to music. Gas prices are too high. Is it, who wants to drive down to Boston if you don't have to? There's nowhere to park once you get to the city. Exactly. And the people on the train are so cool. But see, we don't want them to know about Amtrak because we want to keep it a special club for just us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Yet passenger trains depend on federal subsidies, which are targeted by many Republicans in Congress and by the Republican presidential challenger, Mitt Romney. The subsidy for uh, Amtrak, I would eliminate that. But Amtrak's Steve Calm says the rail service has a good case to make. Well, there is a growing demand for travel by rail across the country. Not only are gas prices high and staying high, but there's, you know, some frustration with the aviation system and all the hassles that go with flying. Plus, Amtrak is actually improving, you know, the services that we provide. We've recently added Wi-Fi to a number of our trains, so 75% of our passengers have access to Wi-Fi. But also in the last few years, we've increased service working with our state partners. So there, there is a demand out there in the states and by the public generally to move to rail as an alternative to congested highways and the aviation system. Now, this record number of passengers this year, is this a fluke we could attribute to rising gas prices, or is this a trend? It is definitely a long-term trend. Amtrak's ridership has increased in eight of the last nine years. Um, Our ridership has gone up 44% since FY2000, 
and it's across the board. Uh, it's in the Northeast Corridor. It's on our 15 state-supported services, and well as our long-distance trains. Just tell me, how climate-friendly uh, is the Amtrak uh, system? Well, Amtrak and rail travel generally is more energy efficient than flying or um, the highways. Certainly on the Northeast Corridor, where it's electrified, a lot of the power comes from hydro-based sources. Plus, we're sort of reducing the nation's dependence on foreign oil by using the electricity and the power produced here at home. Now, Republicans point to the subsidies that support Amtrak. It's, what, a half a billion dollars this year at least, and call it unsustainable. How do the subsidies to Amtrak compare with subsidies for other forms of transportation? Well, we look at the operating support that we get from the federal government. This current year, it's about $466 million. That is down considerably from the high point from 2004, I believe. We were over $700 million for operating only. And for next year, Amtrak is actually asking for less money than what we got this year. What will that number be? We're asking for about $450 million. And that number, just to put it in context, is I understand that it takes about $450 million for a single space shuttle mission. And we're providing train service in 46 states. And we're making a national connection for people that doesn't exist anywhere else. So why this long-standing uh, struggle over subsidies for Amtrak? I mean, some would say that this is another example of fundamental differences between two visions of the role of government in our lives. Do you think there could ever be an agreement? Well, there has been an agreement for 41 years. Amtrak has existed for 41 years. It's always come to an agreement that you know, when we were created, Congress said that inner-city passenger rail was a vital piece of the National Transportation Network. Uh, that was in 1970-71. The current legislation that we're operating under, um, passed in 2008, also says that. And actually, on the federal support, Amtrak covers 85% of our operating expenses. So only 15% of our operating costs are covered by that federal subsidy. And we think that's a pretty good bargain. Now, some would argue that passenger trains are a public good that shouldn't need to turn a profit, just the way that schools are essential and they don't need to turn a profit. What do you folks at Amtrak think of that? Well, we are providing a national mission, and that in the end, we'll need some public support, just like the other modes of transportation. Highways get capital funding, or certainly the airports get capital funding. So we believe that Amtrak, which itself is essentially a mode of transportation, should be receiving some public funds as well for that. We try to do our best to reduce that level of uh, support, and we've succeeded in that. But in the end, we're still going to need some federal money to particularly keep our long-distance trains together that really connect this nation in a way that no other transportation service does. Stephen Colm is the spokesman for Amtrak. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Thank you for the opportunity. Trains may be one way to reduce the use of fossil fuels. Renewable energy is another. We have doubled our use of renewable energy. And thousands of Americans have jobs today building wind turbines and long-lasting batteries. President Obama might have had Massachusetts in mind. It's leading the pack in generating green jobs. A recent industry report on the sector lays out precisely how the Bay State has achieved double-digit growth. Joining me now is Alicia Barton-McDivitt, the CEO of the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, an 11% job growth rate is phenomenal. 
I mean, even China doesn't have that kind of growth rate in its overall economy. And in, in, in this country right now, where it's more like 1% uh, job growth, how is Massachusetts able to do this? Well, it is phenomenal. And it's because we have come together through the state government, working with business partners, working with academic institutions, working with environmental advocates and others to develop programs and policies that work, that make business predictable, that allow companies to get a foothold in the market and then grow and expand here in Massachusetts. What do these companies look like? I imagine they're mostly small. They are. The vast majority of the 5,000 firms that are participating in the clean energy economy here in Massachusetts are small businesses with less than 10 employees. We are growing these businesses from the ground up, from small operations and startups to hopefully one day much bigger companies that generate uh, additional jobs as they grow. Tell me, what is a clean energy job? A clean energy job can be a lot of different things. There are a variety of different technologies that fall under the rubric of clean energy. That would, of course, include things like wind and solar and those types of renewable energies. The largest sector of clean energy jobs actually in Massachusetts is around energy efficiency measures that are installed in homes and businesses and municipal buildings across the Commonwealth. In terms of the types of jobs that are available, some of those are around installation and maintenance, which is the largest uh, number of jobs by sector. There are sales and distribution jobs associated with that, engineering and research, manufacturing and assembly, which I should point out grew 36.6% from 2011 to 2012, which is a significant jump for that sector of the economy. Wait a second. You're saying that manufacturing growth in the clean energy sector grew by 36%? That's correct. We saw a significant increase in manufacturing and assembly jobs. And that is something that uh, we're very proud of, particularly at a time when the traditional economic trends are trending the other way. But that's because we have helped companies grow and locate here and including keep their manufacturing operations here. How did the federal stimulus program uh, affect the growth of clean energy jobs in Massachusetts? Well, there was a huge infusion of investment dollars that came as a result of the Federal Stimulus Act. There were many dollars put in place to directly incentivize, for example, uh, renewable energy and energy efficiency technologies at municipal buildings, at, for example, local wastewater and drinking water treatment plants. There were dollars made available to facilitate rebates for individual homeowners. And all of those dollars that came that flowed through the Federal Department of Energy and and other federal agencies definitely put a spark behind some of this expansion and adoption of technologies that we've seen. So how has all this development of clean energy jobs in Massachusetts affected uh, the Massachusetts carbon footprint? Well, we have seen greenhouse gas emissions go down over time in Massachusetts. Part of that is related to larger global factors like the slowdown in the economy or natural gas replacing coal for some of our power generation. But that's only part of it. We have also seen a significant expansion in energy efficiency measures and installed renewable energy that have significantly driven down emissions. So, for example, Massachusetts this year was ranked number one in the country by the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. That's the first time that Massachusetts has claimed that top spot from California, so we're very proud of that. We've also seen solar grow 
uh, a tremendous amount in recent years to over 146 megawatts of installed capacity in the state. So what are the dark spots on this bright horizon? Well, some of the challenges facing the clean energy industry right now involve uncertainties either in the marketplace or in the landscape for incentives. So for example, at the federal level, there are certain tax incentives like the production tax credit that is available to wind developers whose future is uncertain and could be dependent on the outcome of the election. For example, Mitt Romney has suggested that he opposes extension of the production tax credit. That makes it difficult for businesses who are trying to expand and plan to know what incentives will be available and how to price their products. Similarly, there are uncertainties in the marketplace around the price of other sources of energy that compete with renewable technologies. So I think many people have heard about the advances in technology that have made natural gas more available through hydraulic fracturing. That has really driven down the price of natural gas, and that uh, has an impact on the competitiveness in an open market for technologies like wind and solar. So what's the forecast that the the economists that you consult on this for this uh, growth? Uh, You had more than 11% growth in this sector this last year. Next year, you expect? We expect to see even better growth next year. I am pleased to report the employers we surveyed are projecting approximately 12.4% growth in this sector next year. That would be a significant new expansion. And again, I think far outpaces any other sector of the economy and predictions for growth in other areas. Alicia Barton McDivitt is the CEO of Massachusetts Clean Energy Center. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. Just ahead, counting carbon, the barcode comes to the trees in the Amazon. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Around the time of the Copenhagen Climate Summit back in 2009, we aired a number of reports about the U.N. mechanism which seeks to reduce emissions from deforestation and degradation, known as RED. The idea is to channel payments to countries or communities to enable them to protect their forest and so help limit climate disruption. Among the places we visited was the Brazilian Amazon, where one remote indigenous tribe, the Surui, was pioneering a new forest management plan. Well, there are some new developments in that story, but before we hear them, here's a reminder of the original report from Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman and Bobby Bascom with their translator, Marco Lima. Chief Almir Surui carefully unfolds a map and spreads it on a table. The Surui have been living here in the southwest Amazon for thousands of years. Yet this map of their homeland is the first of its kind. If you look individually to every single spot, every single creek, what we did here was simply understand deep inside of our wealth, our own people, we know what we have. On the map are places where the Surui harvest cashews and other foods from the forest. And tiny symbols mark sites where shamans perform rituals and the Surui fought historic battles. What is this? It looks like a little hut. Um local onde foi feito contato com o povo Surui. Pawentiga is the place where there was made the contact with the Surui people. First contact with the Surui was September 7, 1969. That's the day Brazilian government agents first approached the tribe. 
Settlers soon followed, stealing 80% of the Surui land and bringing new diseases that killed 90% of the people. Today, the Surui are fighting back. We're in the Surui business office in the small town of Kakawal. On a wall hangs a bow and arrow and a long, sharp spear. And on a conference table, a laptop. The Surui are now defending their land with computers, GPS units, and satellite images donated by the U.S.-based Amazon conservation team. The Surui use the technology to create this detailed map of their reserve. I'm going to show you now how do we want to use technology to the protection of our territory. So right now you're, you're using your laptop to zoom in on, is that your house right there? Here you can see very well how much deforestation we have. And also above here, you can see the, the other indigenous territory. All the whites you can see, all the white spots, these are farms that have already destroyed the forest. To preserve what's left of the forest and replant what's been lost to settlers, Chief Elmir has devised a 50-year management plan. It's a pioneering indigenous red project. The Surui hope to profit by protecting their 600,000-acre forest and auction off the carbon stored in the trees. They plan to sell the forest carbon as credits to companies and countries that want to offset their climate-disrupting emissions. To verify their carbon inventory, the tribe uses images from orbiting satellites. In just two generations, the Surui have gone from the Stone Age to the Space Age. You know, it's giving you a whole different viewpoint on, on, on the world. I mean, when you show this to the people of your tribe, and you show these satellite pictures, what do they say? A gente pensou que essa imagem era de um monstro que gosta de engolir floresta. We thought that this image were something like coming from the eye of a monster who liked to eat forests. And then we thought, well, we can maybe use the eyes of this monster to protect the forest. It's 25 bone-jarring miles from Chief Elmir's office to the Surui tribal village. Our guide Marco drives while we bounce around and back. Elmir sits in front. We travel past fields that have been slashed for their hardwood and burned to make way for cattle ranches and soy farms. All that remains of what was once a dense rainforest are knee-high tree stumps and bitter memories of first contact. We had to give up on our land to survive, okay, to remain alive. I'm not against farms, I'm not against production. The only thing I'm really concerned and that I think the white men should see is that they have to grow with sustainable responsibility. When you see this, does it make you angry? Does it make you... I get first of all sad because I really don't know what, what happened to to a guy like this, who simply comes and clear everything. I don't know what goes in his brain. Now we're getting to the Surui people. As you can see, this is the region of the Paite people. And you can see the amazing difference of vegetation, of what you can see over there and what is in here. Here you can see the cattle, and there you can see the pristine forest. The difference couldn't be more dramatic. Deforestation ends where Surui territory begins. Like a surgeon's knife, the chainsaws of illegal loggers have cut clean, separating dense Surui forest reserve from open farmland. At a sharp bend in the road, we see loggers leaning on dirt motorbikes, and they see us. 
We get cold, hard stares. I want to stop and talk to the loggers. But Almir says, oh, no, no, no. Keep going. Let's not stop. Let's not stop. People are going to give us a hard time. Why is that? They threat us because all this logging here is illegal. Oh, I was threatened so many times here. It's very dangerous. Over the past decade, 11 tribal elders in the Amazon have been assassinated. Two were Surui. It was almost three. A few years ago, someone tried to run Elmir off this road. He was evacuated out of Brazil, and when he returned, he was promised protection. But Almir says that was a joke. Secret security, they were supposed to take care of me. It's so secret that I've never seen. That's quite a trip. We finally arrive at the Suri village. It's a scattering of wood huts with palm thatch roofs. The Surui sleep in rope hammocks and use wood to cook in open fire pits. Next to a vegetable garden are solar panels. And where coffee beans dry, a satellite dish. Here is our tribe. Here you have my father, my mother, my nephews, my brothers. The Surui have extended families and elders are revered. Amir proudly introduces us to his father, the former chief of the tribe. Marco, Bruce, Bob. Marco, eh? Marco. Bruce. Bruce. Bobby. Bobby. He said that his name is Marimop. Chief Marimop's face is lined with tribal tattoos. His son, Chief Almir, has none. The custom ended 40 years ago after first contact with white settlers. Surui chiefs can have up to four wives. So far, Almir has two. He's the critical link bridging the tribe's past with its future. Chief Almir is the first of the Surui to attend college. Still, tradition and lore guide his way. The forest is sacred to the Surui. It's essential for their existence and subsistence the forest provides. A young woman sits on a low wood stool and with quick, sharp blows from her machete, cracks open nuts she's gathered from the forest, saving the shells and what's inside. Oh my God, there's worms. Yeah. Worms. <laughs> hey, Bobby. Oh, look at what she's doing. Oh, those aren't nuts. Those are worms. What are they for? Are those for lunch? Is para desayuno, para comida? She's cutting the shell, and watch, she cuts the oh, shell, then she, beads? yeah, she's making beads. Oh. It's a short hike to the forest where the Surui gather these nuts. As we walk, Chief Elmir details his 50-year management plan. The tribe will continue to protect the forest as they've always done, and replant 18,000 acres of trees illegal loggers cut down on Surui territory. All told, the tribe plans to grow a million new trees. So far, they've planted 80,000. I think what we should do is make this a forest again. Let this area receive the species that always belong to here. Feel the air. Smell this, so delicious. Not only through our noses, but don't you feel your skin breathing? Can, can you restore the forest to the condition it was before it was destroyed? 
Pode. É possível. Yes, we definitely can. That's why we are researching on areas where today's pasture, because this way we will, through science, understand what kind of species used to live there, and then we can uh, apply to every area according to their needs. This is result of reforestry already. Mogno. This is also hardwood. Mogno. Cerejeira. Brazilian cherry. Yeah, how did you choose these trees? Why these trees and not some other kind? The way we thought and planned was let's um, replant uh, the trees that suffer the bigger impact. And we also choose fruit trees that can feed our people. And we also uh, picked trees that have big importance on our rituals, things that really make difference for our culture. Our main idea is to make use of the forest the way it is, keeping it, preserving it. Respecting the forest, using the forest the way it's first of all is going to remain preserved, and then of course uh, in a way that we can also benefit not only us but also the, the rest of the world. What is that? Oh, tá chegando! Yeah, here they're coming! That's what they're saying. Bruce Kellerman and the Akakai bird. And the Surly believe its calls warn them when they are being watched. Now, nearly four years since we recorded those calls, many people are watching in the Surly's forest. Loggers are still there and still a threat. But the scientists seeking to protect the forest are there too, and their work is close to paying off. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom has an update on the latest developments. When I first visited the Surui village, they were mapping the boundaries of their forest and marking important cultural sites. Today, they are busy mapping individual trees using a smartphone. Rebecca Moore, the engineering manager for Google Earth Outreach, is working with the Surui on the project. They are using Google Android smartphones that allow the Surui to go out into their forest and do a survey and gather information, let's say, about the diameter and the species of the trees, the locations of the trees, and that ends up being aggregated and, and estimating the entire volume of, of forest that they have for which they are compensated. Before smartphones came to the Amazon, Surui researchers went out into the forest with GPS units strapped to their backs and kept detailed notes in notebooks and on laptop computers. It would take days or weeks to compile all the data, but now... They collect the data, it's automatically timestamped, date stamped, GPS located, and it goes into their database and calculations are automatically performed. They need to be able to go back to the same trees years later and measure them again to see how much they've grown. Then they can calculate how much carbon the trees have absorbed in the process. What they're going to do is put barcodes on the trees, and the Google Android smartphone will recognize, oh, this was tree 1234, it was this amount of biomass five years ago, and this is how much it is now. So are you telling me that if I walk through their forest, there's going to be barcodes on the trees like I'm in the grocery store? <laughs> I guess, but uh, the, the size of the barcode relative to the size of these trees in the Amazon, I don't think you will notice the barcode. <laughs> so far, so good. But this is the Amazon, an extremely hostile environment. It's hot, it rains a lot, and everywhere you turn, there are animals. 
it turns out that there are leafcutter ants that like plastic and they chew through the plastic barcode. So uh, there need to be other experiments with new materials that are more resistant to, uh, to leafcutter ants and to apparently the monkeys that like the metal tags. So monkeys run off with the shiny metal tags and leafcutter ants chew up the plastic ones. But in spite of those challenges, Chief Almir says they've been able to calculate how much carbon is locked up in their trees. And it's a lot. We have calculated that the SUI will be avoiding the emissions of about 100,000 tons of carbon into the air every year by protecting our territory and avoiding that it gets to be deforested. 100,000 tons of carbon is roughly equal to the carbon dioxide emitted by 22,000 U.S. cars in a year. At the moment, Almir is reluctant to estimate how much money the carbon credits will generate for his tribe. But Rebecca Moore says the mapping they've already done actually makes their trees more valuable. You can charge more for carbon that has social and environmental co-benefits under various financial mechanisms. If your forest provides livelihood to indigenous people, if it is a natural ecosystem that houses biodiversity, if it uh, has rivers within it, if uh, there's certain, it's called ecosystem services, that a natural forest, an intact landscape can provide, you can charge more for the carbon in your trees. And so documenting that with the cultural map actually brings this additional financial benefit to them as well. It's a long, complicated process to go from mapping trees to actually getting checks in the mail for protecting them and the carbon they contain. The Sudawi project was recently validated under the Verified Carbon Standard. That guarantees the carbon credits are legitimate and the environmental benefits are real. The very first red project to get paid is the Kasagao Corridor in southwest Kenya near the Tanzanian border. Michael Korczynski is CEO and founder of Wildlife Works, the NGO organizing that project. So we came to this part of Kenya nearly uh, 16 years ago with the idea of implementing a new kind of conservation, a conservation model that would be based on innovative market forces rather than the typical charitable model. Korczynski worked with locals to protect 500,000 acres of dryland forest that's home to a diversity of African wildlife, including elephants, lions, and buffalo. The area lies between two national parks and was under increasing pressure from subsistence agriculture. The conflict in the corridor between people and wildlife was becoming quite intense. So we thought if we can bring a model to solve this intense conflict, then that model will probably work elsewhere. The United Nations, the official organizer of RED, is still a few years away from developing a formal program to pay countries for protecting their forests. So the Kenya Project decided to work outside the UN. For those of us that work in conservation, every year is precious. We lose more forest every year. So we decided that we would uh, see if we could jump the gun and get started with the private sector and not wait for the global solution to come from the UN. And private companies committed to running carbon-neutral operations are supporting it. The Kasagao Corridor's largest customers are the South African bank Nedbank and a European insurance company called Allianz. The project had to go through three rounds of independent audits to certify how much carbon is locked up in the trees and that those trees are actually being protected. 
but it paid off. The project is avoiding about 1.2 million tons a year for 30 years, so approximately 35 million tons. Of emissions over the life of the project. The price of carbon on the voluntary carbon market is currently eight dollars per ton. That means that 1.2 million tons will yield the project more than nine million dollars a year. One third of that money goes to institutional costs, but the remaining two thirds goes directly to the community. And six million dollars a year can go a long way in Kenya. One of the things about Red, in our opinion, is that the scale of Finance available through Red, if Red continues to be successful, it can be transformative for communities. In this case, the community decided to spend the bulk of their Red money on education and clean water projects. We think Red is a fantastic mechanism to empower forest communities to protect their forest and and yet benefit economically. Most forest communities like forest. They live in forest because they they like forest. They don't want to see their forest destroyed around them, but they need economic power. To prevent others from destroying their forest around them. Empowering forest communities through Red is a growing trend around the world, from Panama to Cambodia to the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Sudawi project in the Amazon is the first indigenous Red project in the world. It's also the first Red project of any kind in Brazil, and only the second in the world to get validated. Chief Almir Sudawi says that the health of his community and the health of the forest are one and the same. My family, we cannot live without the forest, much as we cannot live without our culture. We very much believe that we need the forest and our culture to survive, to live. What we want to achieve by developing a green economy, developing a sustainable way of life, is, is guaranteeing the future, guaranteeing the future of the next generations. Within a few months, the Sudawi expect to wrap up the red certification process and start getting paid for protecting the forest they've lived in for millennia. And Sudawi leaders hope Red will help guarantee a healthy forest for future generations of the tribe. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. Our update from Brazil was made possible by a fellowship from the Earth Journalism Network. You can find pictures from the Sudawi village in the Amazon over at our website, loe.org. How sea otters can help fight climate disruption. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Breckenridge Capital Advisors, applying a sustainable approach to fixed income investing. www.breckenridge.com. The Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. And Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Sea otters are cuddly, cute, and playful, but a recently published report from the University of California at Santa Cruz claims they could hold one of the keys to mitigating climate change. Two scientists from UCSC have demonstrated the crucial role that sea otters play in the health of kelp forests, one of the ocean's great carbon sinks. If we want to sequester more carbon from the atmosphere, they say we need more otters.
Joining us now from the University of California at Santa Cruz is Chris Wilmers, Professor of Environmental Studies. Professor, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, sea otters as climate warriors. What made you think to connect the otter with climate disruption? Well, I do a lot of work on the effects of predators more generally on ecosystems. And one thing we've been seeing for a long time now is that predators can have a sort of dramatic impact on plant populations through their intermediary impact on their prey. So when otters eat sea urchins, which are their main diet, for instance, we see the kelp forests bounce back to life. And my research is also focused a bit on climate change. And so I thought, I wondered if there was a connection between the two. So explain to me the specifics of your study and and the findings that you have. Well, over 40 years or so, my co-author and colleague Jim Estes has been looking at the effects of sea otters on coastal ecosystems. And what he's shown over that time period is that when you have otters, you get these abundant kelp forests. When you remove otters from the system, the kelp forests disappear. And what's novel about this study is that we then looked at how that influences carbon. And what we found is that there's a dramatic drawdown of carbon from the atmosphere when you have sea otters and all that underwater kelp using that carbon. And what's the mechanism? I mean, the sea otters are related to urchins, are related to kelp. Explain that for me, please. So sea otters eat sea urchins. When you have sea otters around, you have fewer sea urchins, and the ones that you do have, they sort of hide in the crevices between rocks. If you get rid of the sea otters, the sea urchins come out from the crevices and they start crawling along the seafloor, eating all the kelp they can find. Their populations increase and the kelp declines to nearly nothing. So currently, what is the population of sea otters and what would a healthy population look like? Well, the area that we were doing our work is the, mainly the Aleutian Islands, but then also the coast of North America down to the Canadian Uh, U.S. border. And in that area, uh, there used to be probably a few hundred thousand sea otters. Uh, That population has declined dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years by a somewhat mysterious switch in feeding patterns by killer whales. Killer whales? Killer whales, yeah. So the idea or the theory is that killer whales used to eat primarily the large baleen whales. And uh, after World War II, there was a tremendous increase in whaling, which depleted um, most of the large baleen whales over much of the North Pacific. And so by the 60s or 70s, there were very few baleen whales remaining. And so the killer whales that remained uh, switched to a new food source, and that turned out to be harbor seals. And then they depleted harbor seals, and so they switched to feeding on fur seals, and then they depleted fur seals, and they switched to feeding on stellar sea lions. And then finally, they depleted stellar sea lions, and they switched to feeding on otters. They drove the otter population down from a few hundred thousand to uh, just a, a few thousand. So intensive whaling is indirectly connected to more climate disruption. Yeah, in a sense, you could say that. There's been a sort of chain of cascading events that initiated back in the 1950s with heavy whaling. Given the current population of otters and their appetite for sea urchins that would otherwise eat kelp, how much carbon do you think that they are helping stay sequestered? What might that be worth on the international carbon exchanges? Well, we did a calculation in our study using the current price of carbon on the European carbon market, 
and we valued the amount of carbon that sea otters indirectly sequester using that value, and it came out to be somewhere in between 205 to $400 million just in the carbon sequestered by the living kelps themselves. How might you use that dollar amount to affect the status of sea otters? Well, the hope would be that you'd be able to use that money to reintroduce sea otters and restore the kelp forests. Right now, carbon markets are, are, are very young and they're still evolving, and I'm not sure you could actually sell that carbon uh, on the market today. But as these carbon markets evolve, we hope that there'll be mechanisms to do that kind of thing, and that kind of money could be used to figure out how to reintroduce otters or restore them to historic populations and get back all that carbon into the ocean. So what do you hope will come out of this research? I think one of the main things that I hope comes out of this research is an appreciation for the influence that animals can have on the carbon cycle. So far, most of our climate change models don't incorporate animals. They incorporate plants, certainly. Uh, But animals have been largely overlooked because it's been assumed that they're bit players in the carbon cycle. But what I think this study shows is that the role of animals can be quite significant and that ecologists more generally should be looking the world over for roles that animals might be playing in other kinds of ways and other kinds of ecosystems to influence carbon cycling. Chris Wilmers is a professor of environmental studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Thank you so much for taking this time today. Thank you. Think the U.S. Southwest, and most likely you'll envision hot, dry, dusty landscapes and terracotta-colored desert towns. But it does rain there, sometimes torrentially. And when that happens, streets flood and ponds suddenly appear, making prime breeding habitat for mosquitoes. In the cities, local officials try to get rid of the standing water. But for some desert animals, those brief pools can mean the difference between life and death. From Tucson, Sarah Bromer has the story. I was out taking a walk one night after a summer storm in downtown Tucson when I heard a sound I'd never heard before. It kind of sounded like a flock of sheep. But that seemed unlikely given that I live only a few blocks from the center of downtown. So I followed the sound to the edge of my neighborhood where I found people gathered with flashlights. There, in a temporary drainage pond next to a shipping warehouse, were dozens of toads. Now, amphibians are pretty much the last animals you expect to find in a dry, dusty desert town like Tucson. And nobody seemed to know much about them. So I called an expert. So I'm Phil Rosen, and I'm a research scientist in natural resources and the environment at University of Arizona. I took Phil to the pond the next night, and we listened. But all we heard was silence. The pond looked a lot smaller. We found tadpoles in the water, but no toads. So I tried to explain the sound to him. Yeah, it sounded like Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like that. Yeah. Bill was pretty sure that I'd heard couches spadefoot toads. I fully expected it to be nothing but couches spadefoot because of their ability to use such short-lived water 
They're uniquely explosive breeders with very short tadpole stages. He told me the toads spend most of their lives underground, emerging each summer for maybe only a few nights of frantic feeding and breeding. Their eggs hatch within hours, and only seven or eight days later, the tadpoles become toads. It's the fastest metamorphosing species here, probably one of the fastest in the world. I thought Phil would be really excited to find prime toad breeding habitat in the middle of the city, but he wasn't very excited at all. He told me that the water in the pond probably wouldn't last long enough for the tadpoles to turn into toads. This basin that we're standing next to is designed to uh, dry itself within three days. Too bad because it is like an ecological trap because it just seems really good for them, but it's it's an attractive nuisance for them, basically. It brings them in to breed in a place they can't survive. Tucson's building codes require all businesses to capture their runoff so it won't contribute to flooding, and then sink the water into the ground quickly so it won't breed mosquitoes. Here's Phil Rosen again. You know, this this sort of thing worries me because it exemplifies the ability and, and the, the tendency of people to just keep modifying the environment and making it more and more perfect for people. Unfortunately, there's less tendency for there to be little corners where water lasts for two or three or four weeks. And uh, so I suspect that there's an ongoing, very steady decline of these species throughout most of the city. Now, you wouldn't think mosquitoes would be a big problem in the southwest. Tucson gets less than 12 inches of rain a year, but over half of it falls during what people around here call the monsoon season, in July, August, and September. It floods the streets and forms temporary pools all over the city. And when the water comes, so do the mosquitoes. Mosquitoes really just need water and a warm blood source in order to thrive. And so we do have that in Tucson, especially during the times of our monsoon where we have a lot of rain. That's Dr. Michael Acoba. He's the head of epidemiology at the county health department. Majority of the time, the mosquitoes we have, they're just a nuisance. But since 2004, uh, we had our first case of West Nile virus here. Uh, The number of cases uh, spiked one year to about 40 cases, but usually we will see about 10 to 20 cases a year. So what if we want toads in our neighborhood, but not mosquitoes? According to Phil Rosen, it's possible to have one without the other. If a a pond, let's say like this one, lasted on average for two to three months, it would be so full of predatory crustaceans as well as insects that it wouldn't really produce any mosquitoes. To prove his point, he took me to a nearby drainage basin in a neighborhood squeezed between the freeway and the dry Santa Cruz riverbed. The basin was dammed up at one end with sediment and old tires, and its concrete sides were covered with graffiti. It was not a pretty sight but it was full of toads. So this is a highly engineered concrete drainage outlet, and the mouth of it is blocked by flood debris, and so it's formed a pretty deep pool, and right now there are two species of true toads breeding in it. Those loud ones are Great Plains toads, and the more musical trill are red-spotted toads. We climb down to the water, and Phil pointed out all the tiny animals that eat mosquito larvae. I'm interested in the invertebrates here. There's all kinds of little beetles swimming around here. Those larvae will eat mosquitoes. There's a tadpole shrimp here. There's quite a few of them. Trying to see if there's any mosquito larvae. Because everyone would sort of expect there to be 
tons of mosquito larvae in a place like this, making it a public health nuisance. But with this number of aquatic invertebrates, mosquitoes might have a very hard time surviving in here, and, and I'm not seeing any. The county health department here deals with mosquitoes by either eliminating standing water or treating it with a larvicide. Jeff Terrell manages the vector control program for the department. Well, larvicide we use, it's usually like a BT, what they call a BTI, which is a bacteria. Um, we do use a larvicide oil, which is more of a mineral oil with a surfactant that spreads over the water and keeps it, you know, keeps the um, larvae from break, breaking the water surface and breathing so they drown. Both BTI and mineral oil, if used correctly, are generally considered safe for toads and other vertebrates. But at least one study showed that BTI might sometimes target insects it's not supposed to. And the oil kills several of the aquatic invertebrates that serve as natural pest control. Phil Rosen suspects that the oil isn't good for tadpoles either. He's been researching alternative solutions, and local officials have been open to his ideas. He's been working with them to design experimental pools of longer-standing water that use invertebrate biodiversity to control mosquitoes. So I've been working to develop that into a kind of an art form because I completely sympathize with people not wanting to live around lots of mosquitoes. He believes that in the long run, his solution, though more complicated, will be the best one. You know, if we simplify our environment, we're going to end up with just the things that we can't deal with, diseases and vectors and things like that. And we'll either have to re-engineer everything so there's zero standing water, or we'll have to try and live with the biodiversity and turn it to our ends and let the kids growing up have something interesting to grow up with. I went back to the pond in my neighborhood a few days later, and as Phil had predicted, all of the water was gone. Birds were pecking at the muck. I guess it wasn't a good year for the couches spadefoots of downtown Tucson. But maybe someday this pond will be re-engineered and stocked with the right kinds of invertebrates, which will allow us to have the best of both worlds. A neighborhood that's rich with biodiversity and singing toads, and not too many mosquitoes. For Living on Earth, I'm Sarah Bromer in Tucson. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Baskin, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Jessica Elise Kern, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreese Kandaraja, with help from James Kerwood, Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our intern is Emmett Fitzgerald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. Check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. 
PRI Public Radio International.